listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast from June 10th to June 14th. I was filling in for Sarah this week while she was away on holiday. She'll be back next week. And on the show this week, we spoke to Jane Clifton about... On the inside, 40 years of Prisoner, an event celebrating the 40th anniversary of the iconic Australian TV show Prisoner happening at St Kilda Film Festival. And we also spoke to Dr. Jen about the 10,000 steps phenomenon and whether it's a thing or not on weird science. Uh, we had a great chat with Ashley Wilson about his essay on artists. And also we got to talk about um, things you eat out of politeness. Um, including a pig snout. And for feature creatures, speaking of creatures, uh, Ricky Lee Erickson went for a dive on a wreck in Bali and came in to talk about it, and I ran in a forest. But it's okay, I I wasn't chased. (laughs) Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. How was your weekend, everybody? We're back. The old long weekend. Mm. Uh, Yeah. I mean, mine was, let's face it, it was um, absolutely extraordinary. Oh, Oh, wow. Oh, let me put my pen down and sit back and relax Uh, into this. Well, I went for a... I competed... If competing is this the... This is you running your marathon in yeah, the odd yeah. ways. I mean, there was, a, there was a half marathon that people did. You could go five kilometres, and that, there was a kid's one that was five or six k's. Um, you could do 10, or you could do a half marathon, which is 21 k's. And I uh, did 10, because... It, well, that's all right. That's Jeez, very I, impressive I still. I wouldn't do the five. Well, it was just very steep. Yeah. Like you uphill for, or downhill or both? Both, because you have to come back down again. But the, the uphill was just uh, full on, and it <laughs> felt like there were sandbags around the bottom of my spine. Oh, but it, Jesus. Entirely putting that aside, it was uh, quite beautiful. It was described as um, by a friend of mine as a, uh, a bushwalk in a hurry, and it really was because you're in this you know gorgeous wilderness, but uh, you know, you're trying to get to the end. And were you wow. doing it? With, were you doing it with other people? I did. I, I mean, there was there was a group of us who went down. Um, you know, it was kind of instigated by uh, my calf, and uh, whose name is Jesse. And uh, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I need to be brought up to speed. Yeah, with these yeah, yeah. Personal detail. Uh, and but but. You know, so we you arri- well, we arrived the night before, and registration was at the brewery, which was a bad start because oh. I got some travellers. Uh, and uh, they give you your bib, and uh, there's a little electronic thing on the back of the bib, so it can it picks oh, it tracks. It, yeah, exactly. Wait, and what? I suppose so you're not lost so in the woods. Fa- Does it track your time and stuff though? Yeah, yeah, like in and out of the through the you know, like when you when you steal something at Myers and it beeps. <laughs> Uh, and what you get some sort of like sheet at the end giving you your data and results. Yeah, it was what was you don't get the sheet, it's online, which I'd rather it weren't. In fact, the weird <laughs> thing is because it has your name on it because my bib had my name on it. Towards the end there were people at cheering the, for you. Yes, and yelling my name. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. But it, it's it's a first whole, name or last name? Well, first name, yeah. It's a, it's a Go Daniel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh. It's a bit. It's the the encouragement is very sweet and it very it it stops you from walking. That's for sure. But uh, it's quite hollow because you know they're just reading your name off your chest. <laughs> yeah, but I um I did chat with a friend once about normal uh, things that make you cry that shouldn't necessarily shouldn't make you cry. Mm. And one of her oh, things that you'd like to cry to, like you know listening to acceptance speeches at award mm. ceremonies. And one of her favourite ones because she lives in New York is to go down, and she lives not far from where the New York Marathon is, and to, you know, walk down the street and then just yell at people, cheering for people as they run past. And because, she gets, have, because they have their names on it, it's so much more special. Yeah. So she just ends up crying because she'll, she'll walk down the pathway and then see you running past and go, go that is nice so did anyone have that reaction to you well no not to me that's for sure but it's because the people who finish uh uh, who run the 21 kilometers start before you and uh you know so you're overlapping so the the 20 people who were proper runners who are competing at some point were overtaking me Mm. 
and uh, they're offering encouragement as they overtake you. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, mate, it's nearly over. Oh, God, a bit patronising. <laughs> no, well, it, you could be, but but it's... it's. I mean, I deserve to be patronised, <laughs> uh, but it's also quite warm. The spirit's very good. Uh, but the... You could hear, as I was running, I could hear the uh, speeches of the winner uh, being oh, awarded wow. this thing. And, I, you know, you're approaching speakers and you're like, oh, my God, I am nearly home. <laughs> and then there's, the track takes this massive dog leg and sends you further away from oh. the speakers. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> further away from the speaker. <laughs> and, and then half an hour later you end up back where you thought you were going to be half an hour ago. Oh, what? this is your first... Big run. Um, yes. It's it's I've I've run uh, before, but not in a place as official as this. So I saw in retrospect, like Steve Monaghetti was there, and uh, who's you know yes. one of Australia's foremost marathon runners. And people have people were wearing GoPros on their head. Uh, they also had equipment like uh, water gloves, where oh. they, there was like a tube. So they were like sucking water out of their fingers. <laughs> oh, how weird! Yeah, yeah. So I mean that that kind of level of athleticism was entirely new to me. Well, how were you staying hydrated if you didn't have your water glove? Uh, I, I I got lost. I had to forage for food. <laughs> no, um, there, there were there were water stations around the track, which I didn't I didn't stop at because this is you true. You just wanted to keep going. I wanted to keep going, exactly. I didn't want to stop the momentum. I, I semi-thought I didn't deserve it. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh Daniel. But there was also, there was also uh, people offering, I didn't see this, but there were apparently lollies available <laughs> and uh, M&Ms from people giving oh. them out during the way. I, I mean, I thought, when so, that was described to me, I thought it must have been a mirage. Like... I, I personally would have needed a chemist rather than a confectionery shop, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was there was a there was one woman who was in front of me who took a wrong turn. <gasps> I could see her move because it you know you're in a forest, so there's yeah. like the, it needs little arrows everywhere. She took a wrong turn. Did you uh, say anything? Or? I did. I yelled out. I didn't want to. <laughs> you know, I didn't want this to be the sort of Wolf Creek or something. <laughs> so yeah, I, I shouted out. So that was my uh, that was my one you know, generous, uh, community-minded activity for the day. Uh, but it, there was also, you know, I didn't bring headphones. I forgot my headphones. Oh, do most people run with headphones? Well, it turns out <clears throat> that it's actually not a good idea because, A, it's very slippery out yes. there because you're in the middle of a forest. Yeah. And, mm. and at, the, at the start, you know, it's very dense. The tracks are narrow. And then it's quite bizarre how many over, you know, there would... There was f- over 400 people running the 10-kilometre race and probably just as many running the 21. So, But it thins out to the point where... Maybe I was just very slow, but it thins out to the point where there's no one around you. Yeah. Uh, but there are times when people are overtaking you and you need to be situationally aware. Yeah. Mm. Rather oh. than just listening to ABBA or yes, something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, one more question before we, we finish up on this. Yep. How many beers did you have when it was over? Uh, I well, because the brewery in town's very good. Uh, I I had two probably. F- f- I had a liter of beer. Great, pretty fast. Yeah, uh, but you deserve it. But, but, but mm. direct straight after, we went to a soup fest. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> so far, oh, run a marathon. Let's have some soup. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So <laughs> for, the community of Forest. Arranged soup fest straight after the marathon. Straight that seems after, a weird time. Well, they were happening concurrently, so this, this tiny town was teeming with wow. visitors. So I had soup enthusiasts. I had potato and leek soup. Oh, wow. the good thing about that, it's going to be the same going in as it is coming back out, isn't it? That's right. That's what I told them. Oh, congratulations! On Thanks very much. Mm. Well done, Jez. What about you? Nah, who cares? <laughs> Go to a song, mate. <laughs> Dr. Jen has walked purposefully into the studio <laughs> for a sort of weird science. Hi, Dr. Jen. I, I work. I always walk purposefully. Haven't you noticed you that? You do. That's what I've always said about you. <laughs> I do that. You know the the Kath and Kim. You know special oh, yes. walk. Do the Who walk. Who was that? Cal and Kath. I can't. Oh remember. yeah, yeah. The power walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's me. Haven't you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> the headbands are a bit much, but sure. <laughs> 
So do you guys count your steps? Are you into step counting? Oh, mate, you know it. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm addicted to it, I must say. Are you really? I oh, really man, am. you guys are the perfect audience. <laughs> and I thought you'd be like, nah, Yeah, but not at the moment. Bad. Like, because I don't, wear, don't have a tracker at the moment. So. I've already done 415 steps today. I've already counted. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, mm. I've been doing breakfast radio. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Come on, get out there. You know, you could just stand there and step, you know, put the microphone up and stand there Does and that step. Does that work? Oh, you're still stepping. That's true. All right, it's, I'm standing um, up. <laughs> I've, I've read lots of pieces where people say, you know, I'm so addicted to getting my 10,000 steps that, that um, you know, in the evening if I haven't got it, I just stand there and step on the spot in front of the TV. <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder if that defeats the purpose. And then my kids tell me that um, at their primary school, kids sit there in class shaking their wrist to get their oh, step count. Wow. I'm like, yeah, well, that definitely defeats <laughs> the purpose. But isn't it interesting that this whole golden magic number of 10,000 steps has just become so um, massive a kind of cultural norm and somehow there's this idea that if you walk 10,000 steps a day, you are healthy mm. and fit, full stop. And of course, you know, you guys know what I'm going to tell you. It's no, no. Not no. that simple. Dr. Jen, no. Well, do you know where the, um, the whole idea of 10,000 steps came Can- from? Is it this, jazz. the um, the average person uh, works in an office or will do about 4,000 steps, but if you um, went for a walk for like half an hour, that'll take it up to 10,000. So it's that half an hour of extra exercise that gets you up to the 10,000 that is the benefit. So you're kind of right, Jez. So the idea is that um, the average Australian walks about 7,400 steps. Okay. 4,000, 7,000, whatever. <laughs> Close, mate. Just switch the numbers around. Close enough. Um, but the Australian um, health guidelines are that everybody needs to have 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise a day. So you're pretty much spot on in the 30 minutes of brisk walking. And you're right, it's got to be purposeful walking, not kind of just meandering along smelling the roses 30 minutes of purposeful walking you can't just do a lap of your lounge room (laughs) well if it's purposeful red wine in your head that's how i'd get up to 10,000 but but your 30 minutes gives you somewhere between three and four thousand steps so if you add three to four thousand steps to your seven thousand you're getting just by kind of you know being alive and walking to the train station or whatever that'll get you to the ten thousand steps i find it also helps to lose your keys Oh, absolutely. That's a really good way to get extra steps. But none of that is where the original 10,000 steps came from. So everyone thinks that the the 10,000 step goal came from rigorous scientific research. No way. It came from a marketing company in Japan. Um, In the lead up to the Tokyo Olympic Games, they decided to capitalise on this, um, you know, feverish sense of, oh, we all need to be fitter and stronger. We want to be Olympians because they were worried that on average Japanese people were putting on too much weight. And so they they came up with this marketing device, which was a very early pedometer, which was called a manpokai, which literally translates to 10,000 step meter. And one person I read suggested that it came um, because the Japanese character, the kanji for 10,000, looks a bit like a walking man. Huh. That's why they made it 10,000 steps. Wow, this changes everything. And it caught on because, you know, we like big whole mm. numbers and 10,000 sounds really big, right? Yeah, of yeah, course. It sounds and t- big. And t- 10, hours is a big deal yeah. if you want to practice something to become expert exactly. at it. God, we're suckers. So <laughs> there is no scientific evidence at all behind that original suggestion of 10,000 steps. It was Japanese marketing in the mid-60s. Is it one of those things, though, where the, un- in- the unintended or perhaps the intended consequence is nonetheless beneficial? Totally. I mean, we all know that exercise and walking definitely counts as exercise. You don't have to be out sprinting or whatever it is. You know, there's no question that walking is good for you and there's no question that more walking is better for you than less walking and whether you're talking heart disease or um, preventing some types of cancers or preventing type 2 diabetes even um, reducing depression walking is really good for all of those things but the issue is that because 10,000 has become so ingrained in the kind of public consciousness mm. for many years there are all these studies out there which tested effectively whether 10,000 steps was good but the way they set up the studies was to say well let's look at people who take 5,000 steps and let's look at people who take 10,000 steps and oh, surprise, surprise, the t- people who take 10,000 steps happen to be, you know, l- at less risk of being um, overweight or heart disease or whatever it is. So, yes, 10,000 steps must be the magic number, but they didn't test 8,000 steps and they didn't test 12,000 steps because 10,000 steps was kind of the magic number. So, it's only really in very recent years 
that we've started to be a bit more thoughtful about it and point out that maybe the number of steps isn't actually that important at all. It's how fast you take those steps. Interesting. Because you've got to get your heart rate up. You've got to be puffing, you know. So that's why purposeful walking is the thing to do because, yeah, 10,000 steps of meandering, you know, pottering around your house, watering the plants, drinking red wine, Mm. it's probably very different (laughs) to 10,000 steps of going out there and taking your dog for a walk. But can I still have a sense of superiority over my friends if I do have more (laughs) steps than them? Because I've got these weird competitions with my friends oh, where and we compare our steps. Oh, and there's, you know, everyone is having, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are having those competitions. And absolutely. So the message good, today is good. you always have my permission to be superior. So <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Jen. But the, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but the message is not that, um, you know, 10,000 steps is bad, just that everybody should try and increase their step count. So if you're currently taking 2,000 steps, take more. If you're currently taking 10,000 steps, try and take more. And this idea is that if everybody added 30 minutes of purposeful walking or something else to their lives, we'd kind of all be better off. But a really important study came out um, last month and that was they looked at 17,000 women aged between 60 and 100. I think the oldest participant was 101. And it's important to note that these women were all healthy to begin with. So no one was included in the study who already had a diagnosis of heart disease or cancer or diabetes or any of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And they looked at how much they walked. So they wore pedometers, they measured all their waking hours for some period of time. And then over four years, they measured which of those women died, which sounds very sad, but that's a measure of, you know, the effect of uh, the relationship between between walking and mm. your risk of death. I think there's an alert on your Fitbit and the heartbeat stop. <laughs> <laughs> you need to walk more. <laughs> but what they found was that so the, the least active women in the study took an average of 2,700 steps, which is, you know, not very much. They probably didn't lose their keys, I'm guessing. <laughs> but... Um, Women only needed to take an average of 4,400 steps per day, which is less than probably most of our listeners who are getting up and going to work and, you know, being active during the day are taking. They had a 41% lower risk of death just by taking 4,400 steps per day. And the important thing to note is that those benefits, the reduced risk of dying, increased up until 7,500 steps, but beyond that there was no added benefit. Mm. So 7,000 is the new benchmark. Well, that was just one study of these older women. But I think the message that comes out is, you know, every extra step you take is better. And one Australian study showed that for every extra 1,000 steps you take per day, regardless of where you start, if you add 1,000 steps to that, your um, risk of, re- of dying by any cause prematurely reduces by 6%. That's very compelling. So, you know, it's not... I think the reason why that study is important was to say, don't beat yourself up if 10,000 is not a reachable goal for you. Don't take it as, well, it's 10,000 or nothing. I'm only healthy Mm. if I get to 10,000. If your average is currently 3,000 because you're dealing with whatever life circumstances, you know, medical condition, whatever, if you just increase it by 1,000 steps per day, which is not much at all, you can have significant health benefits from doing that. So diminishing returns after seven and a half. For this particular group of women, older women. So. we haven't, 60 then? We, haven't, <laughs> we haven't done the studies yet for, for other kind of groups, but um, essentially just, you know, go out and walk, peoples. That's Purposely. right. And, and it's uh, all the good goodness of walking is offset by the anxiety of when your device beeps at you to <laughs> literally get off the couch and that you haven't moved for an hour. You can turn that off, though, you know. Oh, no, no. I, I like to feel scolded by electronic <laughs> devices. Whatever works for you, mate. I'll, I'll go walk it off now. Dr. Jen, thanks so much. Three triple R. Are you the type of person that um, like would eat most things put in front of you, you are you a, or are you a picky eater? No, that would be my number one defining quality. Do you that eat, I eat will, anything? I will devour out of politeness whatever is presented and even not out of politeness. There's nothing you won't eat? Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm picky when it gets to... Uh, you know, cheap stuff. But if it's new, oh yes, 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 I'll do whatever. Yeah, I um, used to be a very picky eater. Um, like I just, I think I just kept. I ate like a child. Do you mm. know what I mean? Like it was just mm. like I'd, oh, like no green stuff. Yeah, just... oh, no, I would have that, but it would just be like, oh no, I have a pie instead of <laughs> something nice. You know, um, and then I think it, probably yeah. When I was about thirty, because I never used to eat egg, 
because um, apparently, like I, I was allergic to. Well, I was told that I grew up being told that I was allergic to egg. <laughs> so, um, which apparently I was. You know, apparently, Mum fed me egg once, and I broke out in hives and stuff. And so, but it's also possible that I just ate egg when I was too young to eat egg right. um, and that could have been that but I just it, so in my mind I just had you know mum go you can't eat egg so and just meant that I anything that had the same texture as egg I couldn't really um, stomach and, and stuff and then I just kind of got to my 30s and I went I don't reckon I don't reckon you are let's try and ease your way into this and there was a cafe that I'd go to and then I just over the process of a few months just went through each egg menu on their on their menu mm. so kind of start i think i started off with scrambled eggs and that's kind it's of a good a, place to start yeah, yeah. Easy, easy way into it and then ended at the poached eggs but um and how was your first experience eating eggs again oh did you enjoy it yeah no it's kind of because a lot of it was that mental kind of you know, getting over it. like the taste and stuff and everything was fine. It was just—it's more about the mental mm, yeah. aspect. It's, of it. it's hard to enjoy it when all you can taste is fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You're just worried you're going to break yeah. out in hives. Yeah, um, but no, I was actually I wasn't worried about that at all because I'd already, you know, I'd had things like uh, a quiche or, um, you know. People are like, what about cakes? There's egg and cakes. I'm like, oh, I guess I can eat cooked. I don't know. I don't know. But I can't eat a creme brulee um, or, or tofu and stuff like that. But, yeah, I just kind of – but it was all about the, was overcoming that mental kind of, you know, thing, just going, oh, just get through it. Um, but seafood was a, was an, a, another one. Um, I just couldn't uh, – I just, for some reason, I had in my head that I didn't like fish, like, or any kind of seafood. And then I kind of got a bit older, was just like, nah, just give it a go, mate. You probably really like it. Um, and, you know, I just have a bit of, you know, fish in, every now and again. And then it was, I was in, um, uh, Kath and I were visiting um, friends in Portugal. Um, what a. Mm. Amazing statement. I know. Wow. <laughs> so she's Kath was an exchange student in in Belgium, but um, uh, and she goes. Oh, you know, it still maintains a really great relationship with the family that she stayed with in Belgium, and they go to Portugal for their summer, and so they have a summer holiday house, and so we happen to be in Europe at the same time, and we're like, let's yeah, let's utilize this a holiday house in Portugal and go and stay there for a few days. So we did that and she goes, oh, this place that we stay, there's a restaurant that we go to and it has the most amazing, you know, seafood. So we'll go there. And I'm like, yeah, great. I'm like, I'm because you're going to be all right. I'm like, yes, I'm open to it. I am open to new things. I will try it. Um, and then we sit down and they brought out this all this seafood and it was like everything. But it was so... Overwhelming that because it was, you know, just things like, um, you know, octopus and squid, just the like everything all still there and still kind of. And I just, I got so overwhelmed that I had to go outside and have a bit of a cry. Oh, really? Oh, no. An octopus cry. (laughs) But but it was honestly over the, I'm like, oh man, this is. This is too much. I just want a piece of white meat. You ease in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was just like, oh, this is too too much. I, I went outside and had a bit of a cry and then came back in. But still, I got back in there and That's so had, good. It, had it go. I mean, know? I've never been – well, I pride myself on never being defeated by either an alcohol or meat. But now that's both not true uh, because – a, I had a uh, kombucha beer last night, oh, which oh. is manages to combine the worst of kombucha and the worst of beer, <laughs> in my opinion. I mean, maybe yeah, it's really work? delicious to other people. How and does that even work? How do you make kombucha oh, alcoholic? You, I, I, I don't know. I, you, you would have to ask someone who devotes their life to, <laughs> to, to <laughs> ruining my night. A um, scoby expert. But, and, but also meat, because uh, andouillette is this French sausage. Mm. And I'm like, well... I mean, what's not to love? But I opened up the sausage and out spewed intestines. <gasps> and it's, it stinks. Like, it stinks the whole restaurant. Oh, wow. Uh, and I couldn't finish it. So that was my first defeat. And then the second defeat was I was at a dinner party. 
uh, I don't mean to name drop a city again, but I like you just did. But I was uh, at a dinner party in Paris at uh, a table of what turned out to be a group of anti Semites who uh, force fed me essentially pig snout. Oh my goodness! Some weird dinner parties you're having. You're going to have to so, explain the context so, of this. Dinner. Every time I bring up some boring kind of story, like what's what's something interesting you've eaten, and you come out with a story about eating pigs out in Paris with anti-Semites. What is this? And it was it was. I think they were trying to intimidate me, and it was wobbling like jelly. Oh my oh, god. god! Yeah. And uh, so I did a few mouthfuls and put on a bright face. But yes, turns out you can be defeated by meat. So now I don't know how did you get there. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's so many questions, what did right? You afterwards? Yeah. What, did they match a wine with the pig's <laughs> Three. Triple. Well, Walkley Award winner Ashley Wilson is arts editor of The Australian and author of Brett Whiteley, Art, Life and the Other Thing. His new essay on artists as part of the Melbourne University Press On series asks, if we denounce the artist, what do we do with the work that remains? And he joins us now. Ashley, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Um, you'd, you would have been dwelling on this topic for a long time now. Uh, it's perhaps best embodied by your relationship with Miles Davis, uh, can you talk us through uh, your approach and attitude? Towards Miles? Yes. Uh, look, the broadly speaking, the more I've looked into this topic and, and the more I've read about it over the last couple of years, um, the less certain I've found in my own position, um, the more nuanced and more complicated and more difficult I've found everything. Um, so I've just sort of declaring that up front that it gets more it gets harder and harder the the more you think about it the more contradictions emerge um but in relation to miles uh, probably the reason you're asking is because i say in the book that uh i i have a um you know i'm, I'm a great fan i have listened to him for 20 something years and um and yet anyone who knows a little bit about miles davis also knows about the um some of the details of his personal life, which include um, his his mistreatment of many of the women in his life, including his wives. Um, what you do with that information is obviously the the point here. And what I was wrestling with is: does it matter? What? How much does it come into the um, equation? My personal opinion about his work. If I wasn't a fan of 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 his playing, would I? Would I? make more of his misbehavior uh would i would i seek to um uh, would, would i be less forgiving um and it's not that i'm forgiving um by being a fan but it, it's it, it i think it it just makes you more um more willing to to err on the side of the art over over the sin i suppose and you make the point, of course, that uh, the better the art, the kind of more inclined you are to forgive. No one's really going into bat for Rolf Harris. Well, it, it makes it easy to make the argument. And, um, <laughs> and look, R- Rolf was, was a, a bit of a glib example, but um, not, not an unserious one. Like when, when he went to jail a number of years ago, um, you know, you didn't have these anguished think pieces in the, in the Guardian about separating the art from the artist. And I think that that's sort of important because... Um, what we're dealing with here is is art that endures in a sense regardless of the maker um and um and with someone like rolf harris and you can make the same example same point about miles uh michael jackson but um there's a significant element of of celebrity or at least his personal profile tied into what he was making um and if the if his work or any work of a of a so-called great artist is to endure over the years. Um, you would think it would be on the basis of, of, of its own, on its own merits. Uh, in the book, you also talk about um, how quite often with this debate, it's the the artists that we that we focus on rather than the victims. And you do bring this up. Um, so, can you talk to us a little bit about? Because I found it fascinating um, the way uh, Tibby Hedren and her relationship with Alfred Hitchcock and the way she was able to to separate his work from from who he was. This debate and these questions are. are 
come down to power a lot who who has the power over other people and who has the, who, who also has the right to to speak and whose stories are being told um, and I think that's one of the healthy things about this debate that it's kind of opening these questions up mm. and um, shining light on various parts of of experience that might not have otherwise have been um, with Alfred Hitchcock his treatment of Tippi Hedren for for those that don't know or might have um, conveniently forgotten um, he, he really uh, his, his treatment of her during the birds and then Marnie, and I think it was 1964 around them, um, was was scandalous. And he had this unhealthy fixation on her. And um, and when he made a pass at her and she turned him turned him down, uh, in her telling, she destroyed his career. Um, uh, he he just uh, destroyed her career. Sorry. Um, and yet a number of years later, she was telling that story, saying, "Yes, uh, my my career." suffered as a result of his um, predatory behaviour um, and yet, this is her speaking, uh, he was a great filmmaker. Um, I think one of, the, one of the, the positives of this debate at the moment is that we're knowing now the name of Tippi Hedren quite prominently um, in this story and I, I mean Tippi Hedren in a, in a broader sense of course mm. um, and I'm, I'm very conscious as you say of of um, the the absence of 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 the voiceless um in in the, in all of these stories and with with hitchcock you you can tell you can say who the um who the, who the victim was and with perhaps picasso you could say the same and miles davis you could say the same but a lot of the times over the years that um you you're not hearing who who these other people are and perhaps one of the consequences of this um of of this of this shift in consciousness maybe is that um the that the conversation is being a little bit more open and that we're potentially going to hear a lot more from artists that we might not have otherwise have heard from Mm. and do you think that time plays a factor here i know one of the talking points of your book of the essay sorry is around the idea that potentially time does heal and in the case of someone like alfred hitchcock i feel like his sort of indiscretions and problematic behavior aren't talked about in the same way of as people like kevin spacey for instance what what role does time play in the conversation around this well, I don't think Hitchcock found any real sanction back at the time either. But um, if anything, the, this stuff's coming up now, not not then. But um, with, with the living artists, of course, we have the they're around to to benefit or suffer the consequences. Um, and if it, if they're not going to be facing legal consequences, then we can, in some way, show that our disapproval by not buying their record or seeing their movie. Um, does time heal? Does it, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't excuse over the years like we're not um going to look back and to think suddenly that because it was several hundred years ago that caravaggio was a nice guy despite um being a street brawler and having killed a few people and um and so on um we we don't look back uh, 70 or so years and suddenly think that ezra pound wasn't a fascist um uh, but the passage of time of course does something to the art and um if there is this artificial um, platform, perhaps of celebrity or otherwise, that that it was that it's being built on, then um, you, you're unlikely to still be talking about it in decades to pass. Mm. You travelled for the book to Israel and met with Asher Fisher, who had some um, pretty artistically enlightened attitudes towards Wagner. Uh, can you can you talk us through uh, that paradox? And this is a fascinating one, and I, and I, I should point out that I, I'm no no Wagner expert um, uh, because I, I should, it's an important thing to say in, in Melbourne in particular. A lot of people are, um, <laughs> and um, Asher Fish is a um, Israeli conductor. He, he runs the West Australian Symphony among others, um, and he discovered Wagner at the age of roughly thirty, um, having been a um, professional musician or um, for years and he fell in love uh, he, he he was an acolyte of um, Daniel Barenboim who himself was a is a, is a great um, Wagnerian and um, uh, the the problem with in, in Israel of course is that for 80 something years um, ever since Kristallnacht um, there has been a, a, a unofficial ban on public performance of Wagner um, and the idea is that um, he was he was seen as very much associated with with um, 
with Nazism, basically, um, even though he, di- he died before um, Hitler was even around. Um, the ad- adoption of his, of his work uh, and also the fact that he was a very vicious anti-Semite himself um, have really, uh, really combined to see... To, to be treating him and his music as a um, as a symbol of that horrible period, and so there seems to have been this collective decision that um, that he would his music would be kept from from Israel, and there there were a number of sporadic attempts over the years to play his work, and Asher Fish is one of them. Um, so was Daniel Barenboim, and Asher his his mother and father um, uh, had, had had escaped the war and. And made their way to what is now Israel, um, um, and Asher's position was basically the way he explained it to me was was that um, he, he was speaking with his mother on this, and he it was about reclaiming Wagner from the Nazis um, and not allowing them to keep him. He tried to put it on, he failed, he's now had enough. Um, the, the issue is, of course, a lot more nuanced than I'm putting it, and I, I did speak to a, um, a couple of people there that basically pointed out that um, no-one officially announced that this is this ban was going to be con- happening, so no-one's going to be um, officially announcing that it's over. Um, it's, it's not being lifted anytime soon because the sensitivity is very much still there. Mm. Uh, it's when I was at the Tate last year, seeing the Picasso exhibition, um, which was called um, "Love, Fame, Tragedy," captured 1932. It was interesting to see how absolutely overwhelmingly packed the place was, how kind of seemingly indifferent to the the controversy people. Uh, were operating as they enjoyed the art and there were quotes on the wall of Marie-Thérèse Walter um, talking about how much she valued her time with Picasso and how it was such a privilege to be his muse. And it's it's interesting to see the debates and yet people's enjoyment sometimes won't be sidetracked. Uh, people are devoted to to who they love and they won't be stopped from appreciating beauty and transcendence or whatever, however they choose to come by it sure and i am I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating that people should be um stopped from enjoying this these things or, or otherwise um i think I was, I was lucky to be there at the time and i was also fortunate to have a quick chat with the tate director um at the time as well or currently current tate director and i asked her about this very issue um and it's very front of mind um th- and how to deal with this stuff um, there, there wasn't. Uh, I'll, I'll be quick on this. There was an artist called Eric um, Gill, uh, a British artist who um, it came out had abused his daughters. Um, he's no longer around. But there was an exhibition of his work a couple of years ago in England when they they foregrounded very much his biography and his work side by side. So you couldn't escape his horrible story, nor could you escape his wonderful art. You had to deal with the two. It really is tremendously thought-provoking in the, the question of our time. And uh, Ashley Wilson's book on artists is out now through Melbourne University Press. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Three Triple R. This week for Feature Creatures, we're joined by the intrepid and sun-kissed Ricky Lee Erickson. Welcome back. Thank you. What you been up to? Just been in Bali for oh. a week. <laughs> it was great. Thank you for asking. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> there for work or for pleasure? Pleasure. Oh, um, <laughs> yes. So I was there for just one week and I decided to do a day of diving because I love the ocean. And I actually did it on World Oceans Day, which was pretty cool. Oh, so wow. I didn't realise till afterwards. Uh, but yes, I went to about th- seven hours of driving that day to go to this um, site, this wreck site. It's called the USAT Liberty. Um, and it's in Tullamon Bay, which is on the north uh, east coast of Bali. Um, it's a big. 120 metre long cargo boat which was conscripted, conscripted into World War II. Um, it was first launched in 1918 in New, New Jersey taking a cargo of horses to France. Um, <sighs> the How it was wrecked was it was en in, in route from Australia to the Philippines in 1942 with cargo of railway parts and rubber. It was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and beached in Taliban to prevent it from taking on water and actually sinking all the cargo. And it sat there for about 20 years um, deteriorating. So, and in 1989, 
1963, the eruption by the nearby Mount Agung, which is the same one that was like erupted a couple of weeks ago, mm. um, caused it to roll into the water. So it's just offshore and it's created this amazing artificial reef, which thousands of divers visit every year. And I was lucky enough to go and dive it as well. Cool. Does it get busy down there? Yeah, there was about uh, probably 20, maybe actually more like, yeah, 20 divers and a lot of them are beginners. It's quite an easy um, site because it's just off the shore So, um, and there's not that much of a current. So lots of people do their dive courses there. Um, I was already qualified, so I did mine with a guide. And, yeah, we just spent, we did two dives, so about 45 minutes each, spent about an hour and a half exploring the reef, which probably isn't even enough because it's, like I said, it's quite long. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty cool. Saw a lot of really interesting things, so I can tell yes, you please. some of that. <laughs> so, basically, the beach is, like, big black um, pebbles, so it's quite actually hard to get in, and it's big black sand and it attracts a massive diversity of marine life. Um, like, are you so, sorry, close enough to the shore? you just walking in from the shore? Yeah, to you dive, just literally or, walk yeah, in. Cool. It's probably, like, 20 metres out yeah um so very very close it's on this sandy slope so it can be from the start at the top of the uh, wreck is about five meters deep so you can even snorkel it um and then the bottom is about 30 meters so my dive i think i got up to 28 meters um which isn't that deep um so like i said lots of marine life um corals and reef builders need a hard substance to grow on so um the reef offers perfect um Environment Building block for a reef. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, lots of reef fish like bumphead parrotfish, cod, surgeon, sweet lips, butterfly fish, needy branks, scorpion fish. They must be like, what the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) No, they are absolutely thriving. It's actually such a beautiful reef. You you go in there and it's just all these different colours, all these different animals. You're surrounded by fish. It is similar to the Great Barrier Reef if you've ever gone there. Um, I didn't see any big big things like uh any reef sharks sharks. no sharks unfortunately um but yeah bigger growth probably the biggest fishes i saw were gropers and parrotfish um but yeah i saw a couple of really interesting animals one of them mantis shrimp which is about maybe the one i saw was about 20 centimeters long yeah these are really interesting animals they're really really colorful if you google them they're just absolutely amazing just what's it called currently googling (laughs) mantis shrimp Yep. Okay. Um, they're not actually shrimp. They're actually distant relatives to crabs and lobsters. They're crustaceans. Wow, you weren't lying. They're really sort of rainbow-coloured. Yeah, beautiful. they're really so, yeah, really, really beautiful and quite lucky to see because sometimes they are hidden. Um, they have amazing vision. So they actually have three... We have three types of colour receptive cones, um, but mantis shrimp have 16 types of colour receptive wow. cones. So if you think about what we see in a rainbow is just from three cones. Imagine what they're seeing with 16. Yeah. I can't imagine. What, what <laughs> no, are they seeing? <laughs> we, we couldn't imagine. We, we don't know what that looks like. Um, they have the most complex eyes in the animal kingdom, which is pretty cool. Um, we don't really know why they have this amazing vision, but it's probably for communication, potentially camouflage. And as you do see, they are so colourful. So maybe... do they ch- Can they change their colours like an octopus kind of? I don't... I don't think so, but maybe they can. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah right. but they. Yeah, it's kind of a mystery of, as to why they need such insane colour reception. Mm. Are they dangerous? Uh, they can be. I'll talk about that. Did one bite you? No, <laughs> no, I didn't get too close. Actually, I did. You know, good. Good word of warning. If you're ever swimming in, don't touch anything because you just <laughs> never know what is poisonous. And I actually did swim a little bit too close to a coral, like a soft coral, and I got some little sting marks <gasps> on my leg because wow. I did. I only had short um, wetsuit. short wetsuit on because it's so warm. Um, so and they kind of turned into like kind of like, like pimple welt things oh, um, just from geez. swimming just slightly, slightly too close to the corals. So, yeah, wow. uh, didn't touch, don't touch anything. Do they <laughs> give you warnings about that stuff, about what to avoid? Um, yeah, I think most, I mean, not to me, probably because I should know. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think, what, like, what... It's your job, anything, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know, I know what to avoid. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, things like... Um, lionfish like kingfish and you know things you know like blue ring octopus here mm. you know you just never know you see t- videos of people picking up things that they could die from and you just like yeah. 
Um, but yeah, no, it was just it was just swimming swimming slightly too low to the bottom, which I was trying to swim low because there was actually quite a strong current that day. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's just a funny thing. Um, so yeah, the mantis shrimp they actually have the fastest hunting strike in the world as well, <gasps> which is really cool. So their clubs can move as fast as twenty three meters per second, which is similar to the acceleration of a twenty two caliber bullet. So, what? And they actually move their clubs fast enough to briefly vaporise the water around them. Oh, my God. Creating vapour-filled bubbles. And the collapse of these bubbles produces another large force onto the prey in addition to the 1,500 newtons caused by the impact of the club against the prey. And just in case you don't know what a newton is, it's the force needed to accelerate one kilogram of mass at the rate of one metre per second. And there's 1,500. So they can actually just shatter things that are even much larger than them, much larger than them, things that have big shells. And most things would be safe from yeah. that, from any sort of destruction, but not from the mantis shrimp. Right. It's pretty, wow. pretty incredible. And then another really cool thing that I saw on the end of my second dive was these garden eels. Have you ever seen those? No, no I'm Googling that too. <laughs> That is really, really cool as well. So we kind of were finishing our dive, we were coming up and it was, it's basically a garden of eels with their heads sticking out of the sand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they look, they kind of look like um, a garden. So yes. like a, plants in a garden. Um, and as you swim over the top, they duck their heads back into the burrows and come back up. They're really, really cool. Like an eel whack-a-mole. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, Yeah. It's kind of creepy, especially, if, I mean, not in this setting because it was tropical or warm, but if you get them in the temperate sort of eerie environments. Yeah, yeah kind of the mantis little... shrimp, walk over and punch them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would actually be fast enough to do that, yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so they live in a big group. Their larger species is about 120 centimetres, but they're mostly around 40 centimetres long. Um, when they feel threatened, they retreat into their burrow and close it with a mucus block so that predators can't get inside their burrow. Um, they also have a gland on their tails that secrete a sticky substance that keeps the burrow from falling in itself and burying the eel. Um, basically, oh. the reason why they stick the head out is they eat plankton that are drifting past. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what they end up doing. And, yeah, they're really, really cool. Just amazing to see. I'd seen them in docos before. I hadn't seen them in real life, so that was a highlight for me as well. Did you teach the guides anything? No. Learn <laughs> <laughs> no. your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> No, my dive guide was uh, she. She's spent the last, well, her whole life, the last seven years living overseas, um, diving. She's, she said she stopped counting her dives uh, seven years ago when she reached five thousand. So Whoa. she wow. had done an incredible amount of diving. I learnt a lot from her as well. So yeah, that was really really cool as well that I got to, you know, do a do a couple of dives with her as well. Yeah, it was really cool. And then in addition to those kind of highlights for me it was lots of sea squirts ascidians they're kind of little tube uh things with one hole that where they suck the water in one hole that goes out but they're just amazing colors amazing diversity lots of hard corals soft corals uh, vase corals and lots of animals living in association with the corals as well like big basket sea stars um, feather sea stars lots of um Mussels and all sorts of nitty-branks, little mollusks. Little you would have seen worms. so much more than anyone else because you knew what you were looking at. Well, I actually <laughs> find that because I did my master's with um, marine invertebrates, I end up getting really close and looking at things like tunnel vision. And then right. I ended up, when I was diving in the Great Barrier Reef, I ended up missing a lot of the sharks and things because <laughs> You're like, I was oh, just a snail. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, you have to remind yourself. And then my dive guide at one point, she said, you know, she kind of rolled it over and she said, indicate like, look up, look up. There's a shark behind you. No, no, but then you just look up and you just see the structure of the ship above you. It's about, you know, 30 metres above you. And you just think, wow. Like, And it's just covered in colourful reefs. It, the ship itself was quiet because it was sitting on the shore 20 years before it actually fell and it's quite deteriorated. You can't really recognise it as a ship anymore. Right. But it's just incredible. And diving a wreck is just um, a very special experience. So I was very lucky. It was definitely a highlight of my trip. Well, it sounds like an amazing holiday. And and uh, now you can claim it on tax. Yes. <laughs> Ricky Lee Erickson, exactly. thanks for coming in. Thank you. Three, triple, R. 
Actor, singer and writer Jane Clifton played Margot Gaffney in Prisoner from 1979 to 84 and is moderating a June 25 event and screening at the St Kilda Film Festival titled On the Inside, 40 Years of Prisoner and we're lucky to have her with us now. Jane, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me, Daniel, oh. everyone, <laughs> Geraldine, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Can you tell us about this night? Uh, Yes, I can. It's um, it's basically uh, an interview with Val Lehman, who played B. Smith mm-hmm. uh, in the show, and um, then they decided to get me to interview her, which was sounds like a good thing. We're going to look at some clips. Uh, I think we're going to look at an entire clip of um, when I burnt the jail down. <laughs> oh, yes, a classic moment. And I got to tell you, this is the most bizarre thing. I thought just before I came in this morning, I thought. God, I haven't seen that. I was sitting in my car looking on my phone wow. at that episode. That was quite bizarre. And seeing myself um, so young. And, and we'll look at other clips as well and just talk about kind of, you know, where it sat in the the television history. What do you, you think know? of that? The episode is The Great Fire, which we'll be playing, episode 326. Yes. And uh, <laughs> and what what did you make of it? It cracks on at quite a pace. Look, I was only looking at the bits that had me in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because the rest of it's pretty boring. <laughs> but going back to Betty Bollard in the halfway house, I feel, was that happening when I was in there? <laughs> you know, uh, it is a pretty... So I can't really say. Yeah, I'll that's have fine. to watch no, all of it. A surprise. But, gee, it was fun to do. <laughs> well, you, you, there is, here are some lines. You, you, oh. you shut your trap. It's going to have to be a bloody big fire for them to think it's fair income. <laughs> Get stuffed a lot of you, you stupid bloody bitches, and you're piss weak, B. Oh, look, it's just colourful. Yeah, and is there anything... Is, do you have an abiding memory of uh, the vernacular and the... Do you know, it's really funny. I was thinking about that last night because um, I had to start... Th- I try not to think about this show as much as possible, yep. but uh, because I've got a job and they're paying me, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, and I remember one of the first days I was ever in there and I ha- in my script in front of me I had to say, stone the crows. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. And I turned to them and said, do people actually say stone the crows? <laughs> mm. And it was actually an yeah, English... they do in prison. Well... <laughs> No, not the prisons I've been around. Uh, Ian Bradley, who was one of our writers, was a very English guy, lovely guy, brilliant writer. But there were a lot of expressions like that, like flame and this and yep. stone the crows. It was like we were in the country or yeah, something. Yeah, well, I, think, I think Alf Stewart from Home and Away yeah. has now appropriated some of the prisoners. Yeah. Hey. Uh, and in the, in the episode, you're smoking cigarettes. Ah, uh, Ransom we smoked. What? Do you know what ransom is? No. Well, it's like smoking a tampon. Oh, okay. <laughs> because yeah, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, you don't want to try it. Because we had to smoke, and I, I actually did smoke a little. In fact, it made me smoke. I wasn't a smoker, mm-hmm. and um, so we got free cigarettes on the set, but they were really, really low tar with an incredibly thick filter, and it was just like a <laughs> tremendous amount of Betty Davis work going on because. <laughs> They were terrible cigarettes. I did a lot of smoking acting. I used to burn the hairs on my forearm. Why? Not that I had it. Because there's stuff to do. Oh. <laughs> I had to think of things to do when you were standing around in there. But it got, it got you hooked. It did, actually. Because oh, wow. after a while, I think we got a sponsorship from a major cigarette person with very attractive blue yeah. packs. Not Winnie Blue. And... Um, you know, he had free cigarettes, and there they were. And hmm. I smoked it a bit. I have to say, I did develop a habit, but I lost it very quickly. Okay, uh, and it's the method, you know, <laughs> yeah, professional. <laughs> uh, and in the in the show, there are you know there are tips like the prisoners communicate to each other, tapping metal on pipes, <laughs> and that sort of stuff. Did you did you pick up anything as like, well, you know, if 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 worse comes to worse, and I do end up in the big house. Uh, no, <laughs> no. N- nothing at all. Because no, now I, I have that in my arsenal. See, there you are, twice on the pipe if the answer is no. That's all I can think of, really. But, yeah, I, it was pretty hard to do stuff on the one, because we're all on the one level. Because yeah. mm. in most jails that you see on television, they've all got, you know, three or four galleries and stuff, but this was all on one level. So if you tapped on the pipe, you'd only get the person next door. Right. Really, mm. you wouldn't get someone down the corridor. But I'm sure that goes on. We had um, Pamela Rabe in um, ah. last year, and um, I tell you what, after we had her on for an interview, it was amazing. The, the fans of Wentworth 
something else. Yep. They love it. Do you reckon it, it was the same for prison? Obviously, fans of Prisoner are, are obviously there are many fans. Do you think it's the same level of fanship that there is for Wentworth at the moment? Or? I don't know because I, I really I think I probably only watched one ep of Wentworth because I was going to interview Daniel mm-hmm. who was played the B Smith for, character yeah. and I had to look at it, but. Um, Apparently it is quite passionate too, but ours have been going for 40 years. Mm. Still, if yeah. we go to Britain, we can do personal appearances over there and people come in their hundreds. And I've been posting, I've got a gig singing on a Thursday night at the moment and I've been posting little promo clips on it and they get like 5,000 hits wow. because it's prisoner fans still. Mm. They yeah. don't care. But I, I think Wentworth's been a, a fantastic success, mm. you know, in its own right. It's got that really thin commi- uh, connection to, to prisoner. So and you've, like only, H- you've only watched the one episode of Wentworth. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you, you know. Don't wanna, you're competitive. You're just like, oh, no, nah, I could have done better than that. Prisoner's no, better. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my gig? <laughs> and, you know, there hasn't been a character with my name yet. So when there is, I'll start watching. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's. I, I suppose it's a bit like I was a really big fan of Orange is the New Black. Yep. I think that's mm. such a great show. So I, I see the appeal of the girls behind bars thing. But mm. I don't know, it was too weird because they had our names. They've got our character names. Mm. But they're not actually anything to do with those characters. It's like a sort of weird thing where we've taken those names and a vague idea of what it might have started with. But, yeah, it's strange, mm. very strange. You now have 40 years of fan stories to a, a bank of, uh, of enthusiasts. Yes. Can you pluck one for us, the one that's impressed you or blown you away? Oh, look, just the, just the longevity of it, you know, just the fact that they they just adore you still, mm-hmm. no matter what, you know. Uh, it's, it's relentless and uh, just mystifying. I've never <laughs> been able to get to the bottom of it, but, you know, I do understand it a bit, but... If I had a dollar for every time someone came up and said to me, oh, I used to watch you when I was a little kid. Right. My mum and dad didn't let me watch, but I used to watch oh, through okay. the kitchen door. You yeah. know, it happens every time. Well, it does feel very illicit watching now. Yeah. Is it... Was the, do you have any commentary on the nature of even making television uh, in, the, in Australia in the 70s and 80s compared well, to Well, look, you know, in hindsight... It was an incredibly groundbreaking show. Mm. It was work for women and not attractive women. I like, you know, I've always talked about casting by cup size. You know, mm. if you're, you're built in a certain way, you're not going to get a lead role. There was just this vast spectrum of women and none of us wore any makeup except when we got out of jail. <laughs> we went to the makeup and it was, oh, great. The makeup would just look at you and pass you by. And we were of all, you know, shapes and sizes and the thing that was riveting about it for people was that there were, there were stories of people. So the reasons why most people end up in jail are to do with family and to do with politics to do with economics mm. and we were women that were in that situation so I think that's what attracted people to it mm-hmm. and so at the time you had cop shop and you had other ones where all the women on television were glamazons really they had the Farrah Fawcett bangs they had lots of makeup they looked gorgeous mm. and we were nothing like that at all with Due respect to my fellow cast members who were quite cute. But I had terrible teeth. You know, I had a gold tooth in the middle of my That's face. Terrible. That's terrible. Well, now it's really cool. I could be a rapper and be funky, but you know, in 1978, that was radical. You were not going to get a role on television unless you were a prostitute or a criminal in those days. So it was great work, and every woman in Australia, every actor in Australia, got a gig on that show. Uh, you know, so it was. You know, fantastic work, mm. and the fact that it's still remembered forty years later. Mm. I mean, we all say if we knew that it had been watched for another forty years, we would have asked for a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you also have a bit of a side hustle. You're a marriage celebrant. I am. Tell, I want to know: um, Have you had a, an increase in in work since the marriage equality? Do you know, it's came? funny. Uh, people said to me, "Oh, you'll be inundated with work since when the same sex legislation." Mm. Came through, and I said, "Listen, you know, I don't think so because most gay people I know don't want to get married. They just want the choice. Yeah, you know, not everybody's going to come and get married, but by the 
same token, I have had a lot of same-sex marriages in the last year. It's been absolutely delightful. Every time I say the new wording of the monotone where, mm. you know, marriage between two people, it nearly always gets a cheer, whether it's a, a straight wedding or um, a same-sex wedding. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of great. I love yeah, that. It's awesome. Yeah. Has yeah. anyone asked you to quote Margot Gaffney while you're being a celebrant? <laughs> I have had a lot of gay men who like the fact that I am Margot <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the girls nuts. So much, you know, okay. but the guys who are gay men are the biggest fans of Prisoner. There's no two ways about it. Mm. I don't know why. I really, I need that to be explained <laughs> to me. But definitely, if someone asks me to get gear up in the denim, I, my standard answer is yes. It'll cost you ten thousand. <laughs> Make them pay. I'm available. <laughs> and do, you, do you identify at all with Margot Gaffney? What part of her do you most identify with? Um, not really, <laughs> but the unique hair is all mine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was weird hair even to that. That hair would not have got on television. Um, but, you know, she was kind of, she was daggy. I quite like that she was really daggy. Mm. She started off as the bookie in the jail and she was, a, you know, Val Lehman, and we'll talk about this, she used to love to hit me. You know, oh. she did. She went, oh my God. On camera said, or off? Yeah, she'd do this thing, get really close to you so that when she spoke, my hair would blow all over my face and you know I've got a few bruises from Val over the years and you, you know, you've got to be able to take it you put someone in a headlock in this episode as well yeah <laughs> so what very menacing Jane I threw poor old Betty Bobbitt <laughs> Betty Bobbitt's character what was it I can't remember um, anyway she had a pacemaker mm-hmm. and I remember throwing her up against the dryers because that was going to kill her the pacemaker and the dryers oh that was the worst thing I reckon Margot ever did wow. it was so, Judy that was her name. Beats Judy. the Molotov cocktail that <laughs> yeah. in this episode. Uh, the St Kilda Film Festival event, On the Inside, 40 Years of Prisoner, is on Tuesday, 25th of June, 7pm, St Kilda Town Hall. And for more information, go to stkildafilmfestival.com.au. Jane, thanks so much for Absolute speaking to Breakfasters. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Cheers. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.